as you begin to let God form and shape you. And it doesn't happen immediately, but over time a character is formed. And as it's formed, you find serving something you do, not just when there's an opportunity or you're trying to help out somewhere, but your life becomes that. And that's what we want to talk about. Let's pray. Father, hear our prayers and hear these thoughts. We pray these things in Christ's name. So before I do that, I'm going to ask you to stand, okay? We just heard the song. I love this idea. You know, we touch the sky when your knees hit the ground. Everybody just kind of reach up for a second. Okay, good. And then I want you to just turn around and reach and say hello to someone and just serve them by saying hi. <laughs> Attitude is everything. So when we're talking about character, we're talking about really the forming of an attitude and the way we think. And Chuck Swindoll writes these words, and they've kind of become so significant that people put them on plaques and hang them up in their uh, house. You can get it at a Christian bookstore or online. But these are the words that he wrote that I think are well-written. The longer I live, he writes, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It is more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. I would go on to say a a sports team, a, a group of friendships. Attitude is so important. And he says the remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced, he writes, that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And so it is with you and so it is with me. We are in charge of our attitudes. You have the opportunity today when you woke up, you have the opportunity to wake up and say, God, I'm going to give you control of my decisions and that will mean I'm going to give you control of my heart and my thoughts and my words and eventually my actions. And if you're like me, about three minutes after you say that, you're forgetting it, right? And it's all about who? It's all about me. But this is the process of growing to become like a servant and developing the character of a servant. And the character of a servant is formed by an attitude that is through choices you make that begin not only in the beginning of the day, but what you do throughout the day. It's all about attitude. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and I I have the older translation. Some of you, if you read the New International Version, you maybe get the newer one. The the 1984, which dates me a bit, um, says, your attitude should should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Paul is writing to this group of people who are in Philippi, modern-day Greece, and he's a group of followers, and they didn't meet in a church like this. And that, that didn't happen three, 400 years later when they built actual buildings where you would go to church. When they went to church, they went to someone's home. And often they weren't, you know, they were trying to, uh, this was a new faith and many times were persecuted. So they would meet in a home, and there would be 10, 15, 20, and sometimes get as large as 70, 80 people. 
if it was a very wealthy home, and, and they would meet in these homes. And, and he was saying to them when they were meeting, he was talking about their life, and he said, one thing I want you to do is develop the attitude. When you wake up, I want you to make choices and to begin to think in such a way that your attitude becomes part of who your character is so that you become a servant. The NIV, the 2014 version says, in your relationships with one another, he uses the word, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We have our minds set on something. And so the very first thing when we talk about the character of a servant, it is formed by an attitude, which is a mind that is set in a direction. And it's not just you signed up to serve, right? We have some people, and they need, I think, some people for doing some bell ringing and things like that. You know, we have just different events, or we have opportunities we share about. And it's one thing to show up and to come and go, I'm going to serve for this hour or so. But it's another thing to say that I'm going to serve for the next 24 hours. How do you do that? How do you do that so that maybe... When you guys are 40, it's like, like years from now, but I mean, when you just think about possibly when you're 40 or 50 or 70, you have the character formed within you so that your attitude is such that when you choose it in the morning, it kind of through those thoughts becomes something about who you are. Well, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, he gives this little, if you, if you read in your Bible, it, it's kind of parenthetically placed in there. And the reason that is done is because it was probably a chorus. You know, we sang these choruses. But if you look at verses 6 through 10, those verses were like a song that was sung. It wasn't necessarily penned by Paul, the apostle. He was penning something that when they would get together in these house churches, they would say or they would chant or they would sing. And this is the attitude that Jesus had. It was formed from the way he lived. And listen to what it says. Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Or in the 94, 84 version says, something to be grasped, to grab onto. Rather, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then you note verse 9, things change because he uses the word therefore, and I was told in school whenever you see a therefore, you've got to figure out why it was put therefore, and the reason it was there is because of what was just said, Right? And what was just said is the way that Jesus lived. Because of this, listen to verse 9. There's this, what I call, meteoric rise, this, this sense of promotion from someone else, his father. He says, therefore, God, his father, exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name. That is, the, at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This Jesus who went way down on his knees, was now not just touching the skies, but reigning above every one of us as a result of his life. And the way up that I want you to think about, the way to promotion, the way to be um, in a place where you begin to experience the blessing of God is always down. The way up is down. It's so counterintuitive. 
The way our culture calls us, if you listen to, uh, uh, to ads that you hear on TV or radio or you read um, things in magazines, it's always about what you need to get. And if you grab this experience and if you can grab hold of this and if you can get this, and it's all about getting, grabbing, getting. Where Jesus was really counterintuitive, he said the way that you really get, the way that you really are blessed, the way that you begin to experience life is by becoming this servant who gives. And it's so counterintuitive. He would say things like, the least will be the greatest. What? Really? The first will be last. The last will be first. There we go. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever humbles himself like a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. These are all counterintuitive. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. The way up is down. Which really calls for looking at everyday life differently. Jesus, both not only through his words, but he modeled the character of a servant through what I call this downward path, this knee-bending, servant-like attitude. And God will form our, our character when we begin to say, God, what does it mean for me to serve? What does it mean for me in a certain situation as I'm living in my life, living with people close to me, as I live with people that I go to school with or I work with? What does it mean for me to take a downward path? What does it mean for me to live in such a way that I bend down so that somehow others might be served? So I think what Swindoll says when he says the remarkable thing that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day is that we are in charge of our attitudes. And so how are you in charge of your attitudes? What do you need to do? What is it that he seems to be indicating here? And it's this. What are your foundational thoughts? When you think about your life, is it immediately about God and serving or is it immediately about me? And it is all because of the way we are selfish. It usually comes back to us. But the way that he says you begin to transform that is through these foundational thoughts. And I'm just going to share with you what they were in the life of Jesus. And the first, what I call foundational thought that Jesus lived with, that he knew in his heart that he woke up every day, I think, with, was this thought. God created and called me to serve others. That's kind of foundational to everything. I I recognize, says Jesus, he was convinced of this. He says it again and again. God created and called me to serve others. If you just listen to people long enough, you'll understand what's in their heart. Because what's, as Jesus said, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. So if you just want to know what's really in someone's heart, just listen to them and you'll know by their words whether it's about them or it's about you or, or it's about God. Jesus, on both counts, his words and his actions, revealed this attitude because he had set it with some what I call a simple framework of thoughts. And the first thought that was so incredibly important to him was a recognition that he was here. He had been assigned a mission. He was given a task. He was called to live in such a way. And so he, he, he would wake up in the morning, I think, and one of the first things that would come to his mind is he would have to, just like all of us, because he was human just like us, he, he would say, I am created and called to serve others try say that out loud i am created and called to serve others you didn't do that real well come on like you're waking up and now you're waking up a little bit awake and just say i am created and called to serve others right i am created and called to serve others if you were to think about that in the morning and you made that one of your first thoughts foundational and said, today, God, I am created and called to serve others. I think that was Jesus woke up and he knew he, God had formed and God had fashioned him to be his servant. And, and he would say, this morning as I awake, I awake into a life of serving you, God, and others. In fact, we're told this is 
true of his life because he says in Mark 10.45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Not only that, to give his life as a ransom for others. What's interesting, you go through the Gospel of John. Just take the Gospel of John and start reading through it. If you read, I'll just read chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. You see this is the framework of his thinking. In chapter 5, verses 30 and 36 and 37, he says, in, I'm reading from the Living Bible, I can't do a solitary thing on my own. I listen, then I decide. Isn't that interesting? It's not so much that you're even serving other people, as he says, I listen... I think he listens with this awareness of what's going on in his relationship with his father, and he's listening also to the needs of what he sees around him. And he's in this listening framework of mind. That's part of what it means to be a servant. And he says, I listen, then I decide. You can trust my decision because I'm not out to get my own way, but only to carry out orders. It's the work the Father gave me to complete. These very tasks, as I go about completing them, confirm that the Father, in fact, catches. You'll see this again and again, sent me. I have an assignment. I have been created and called to serve my Father and others. Chapter 638, he says, I came down from heaven not to follow my own whim, but to accomplish the will of the one who sent me. Verses, uh, chapter 7, verses 16 through 18. Jesus said, I didn't make this up. What I teach comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who wants to do his will can test his teaching and know whether it's from God or whether I'm making it up. A person making things up tries to make himself look good, but that's not what Jesus was about. He says, but some, someone trying to honor the one who sent him sticks to the facts and doesn't tamper with reality. They live in the real world. They live in reality. 8, 27 through 29. They still didn't get it, says the writer John. Didn't realize that he was referring to the Father. So they, Jesus tried one more time. He tried again. I'm not making this up, but speaking only what the Father has taught me. You see the servant heart? The one who sent me stays with me. He doesn't abandon me. He sees how much joy I take in pleasing him. There's no need. I could, you know, I talk about the words. I, you just read through the Gospels and you see his actions are always about how to serve others and what does it look like. And he says your attitude will be formed, I think, when you make this foundational thought a part of your life and you make a commitment. You've maybe never thought of it this way, but God, my life is has been given to me, and you have a, every person here has been assigned in a unique way for God to use your life to serve Him and to serve others. And when you begin to think that way, and you go, "It's not about me, but it's about what you have created and called me to do," and I'm going to begin to listen that way, then you begin to start to form an attitude, which begins to create a character. And in Jesus' case, this happened from birth. You know, my, can you imagine Mary and Joseph and all the stuff that happened, and they take Jesus, little baby Jesus, and from a very young age, they're, they're saying, you know what, you were, you were special. You were designed by God. God has an important task for you to do. And then, and then at 12 years of age, he's pretty much aware of it now. He's kind of aware in his consciousness, hey, I am being sent here by God. And then he, he begins to be so much aware that his parents go and they, they leave Jerusalem. They're going back to Nazareth. They realize Jesus isn't with them in this caravan. So they come back to where Jesus is at. And Jesus is there at the temple. They find him there. And his first words to his mom, it almost sounds like he's being kind of um, 
sharp and, and uh, disrespectful, but his first words to his mom is, Mom, don't you get it? You've been telling me this all along. I'm, as he's conversing with the rabbis and, and basically confounding these rabbis, he says, I'm here to do my what? Father's business. And, and then Paul would say something like this. Your attitude should be the same as Jesus. Your thoughts should be the same as Jesus. Now, Jesus had a specific mission and assignment to do, but guess what? You do too. Your life is unique. You need to begin to start thinking what Jesus prayed for you. You know, the last, very last prayer of Jesus, he, he's standing before his father. Before he's going to give his life, he's going to die, serve in an incredible way. He stands before his father, and I'm reading from the message in in chapter 17, verse 4. I glorified you on earth, father, by completing down to the last detail what you assigned me to do. And then as he gets to the end of his prayer in verse 18, this is what he looks. He looks out at the disciples because he says this is not just for them. A little bit earlier, he says this is for even you. He's praying for us. And he says, in the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, father, I give each of you a mission. And that mission is to be a servant. The second foundational thought is not only about being created and called to serve God, but is, is this idea that he leads and empowers us to serve him. Jesus, in his, his thoughts, he knew that he was led and empowered by God to serve others. Now you go, well, yeah, he was God. And it's kind of like, you know, like someone saying, you know, you should shoot the ball like Michael Jordan or like the puck like Zach Parisi or something like that. And you're going, yeah, right. They got skills that I don't have. I mean, it's nice to say you should have the attitude of Jesus, but let's face it, I know who I am, and I do too, so, and you know me. It says, though, they would have the thoughts of Jesus. What are the thoughts of Jesus? That he was led and empowered by the Spirit. It doesn't say anything about how well you're to do it. It just says that you have that capacity. And, and so where this becomes really true is you, you read some other verses in Scripture. It, it, it says in other words that we are like, Jesus was like us in every way. Ever thought about that? He is like us in every way, but it always says without sin. So you've got to ask yourself, what does that mean? He's like us in every way. Hebrews 2.17 says, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way in order that it might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He had to be one like them. For we do not, it says in chapter 4, verse 15, have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. Think about this. Jesus has been tempted in every way just like you. Jesus grew up from age 0 to 15 and experienced life just like you and me. He knew what it was like to have younger brothers who were a pain. He understood to have sisters who would, you know, whatever, I have a, you know. But anyway, he just understood it. He experienced it. In fact, in every way he was tempted to react and punch or to go, he had every temptation. But here's the difference. He, here's the real difference. When you're tempted, guess what? Every one of us at a certain point will somewhat give in, Right? No one is tempted and follows through perfectly, correct? Jesus always followed through. So he was stretched to the fullness of the temptation and never gave in. 
But what's really interesting about that, he lived from 15 to 30. So people are going, yeah, he was right. You know, when we think of his three years, he lived for another 15 years. His dad had died. He took over. They call these the hidden years of Jesus. From 15 to 30, do you know that he took over the family business? He ran the the, the construction company. You have to believe that he had, at times, a demand of orders that he's going, how are we going to fill this? You know he had people who came in who were probably irate because they wanted something done sooner than, than they expected to do it. You can imagine the fact that as he was a person, and, and just like you, and just imagine in your business, he has experienced what you have experienced. He was fully human. In every situation, from 0 to 15, from 15 to 30, from 30 to 33, he had to rely on the Holy Spirit. Why do I say that? Listen to these verses here. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. When I was growing up, when I was going through high school, you know, junior high and high school in my church, I, I had a picture of Jesus as being fully God. But I never understood the fully human part. Anybody get that? How can, what is that like? Well, we'll never understand it completely, right? There is a mystery to this. But here's what he says. Who being created, verse 6, in the very nature God. Okay, here's how he's not like us. How many here have two parents? Biological parents. If you don't raise your hand, well, we have another session for you. <laughs> how many of you have two sinful biological parents? Again, if we have a problem here, um, everyone has. Jesus was virgin born. His mother Mary, human line, was born from his father. So in that way, he has been given a genetic base that we don't have. He was born fully God, did not sin. But here's how he was like us. He goes on to say that he was... um, and in, in, in these words are important, and that's where I read it here. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Here's what happened when Jesus became a man. Not only did he give up his glory, we understand this. Oh, yeah, he was God in heaven, and he came down to earth, and he walked like a man around us. He was hungry and tasted and, and thirsty and tired and, and all these different things. He experienced those temptations. But what you don't understand is this, that when he also came, he gave up what I call these omni-like God qualities. Well, you're thinking, well, what does that mean? You ever heard of the word omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresence? This is this idea that omnipresence is the idea that you can be present everywhere whenever, all the time, right? Well, we know that Jesus was, was, in his, was in the body. And we read things in Scripture that say that it, it, it we're told these words in Luke that... Um, the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. There was this sense that Jesus, when he came, not only did he say, I'm not going to be everywhere at one time, but I'm also not going to be using the fullness of that power, nor am I going to know everything. That's what it means to be omniscient. He actually didn't grab hold of those things, let go of those things, because here's how he lives, led and empowered by the Spirit. And this is what gives me such hope and should give us such hope. We, like Jesus, have the ability to listen to the Spirit. When Jesus came into your heart, when you open your heart and recognize your need of him and say, Jesus, I want my heart to be a servant like yours. I I understand I've been created and, and called to serve you. Now you begin to say, I want to be led and empowered by you. But here's how you do it. It's not like he's asking you to be something you're not. He's just asking you to have a heart that is open to the leading of the Spirit so that he can empower you to do what he wants you to do. Jesus lived like that. He set an example 
of what it means for each and every one of us to grow in relationship with the Father, to pay attention to the Holy Spirit, and to be led by Him and empowered by Him. And then as you go on and read this, there's another thought. So he's living is this model. He, how could he say have the same attitude if, he, if you weren't in that kind of position where God can, through his spirit, begin to empower the things he's calling you to do? That's what he does. He not only calls you to do it, but he equips you to do it. Hey, I used to, oh, I'm just, I forgot this part. I used to, when I was in, I'm younger, I used to think, what a, what a horrible thing. I'd read these things in, in, in John where Jesus would say, you know, isn't it better that I go? I'm going, really? What? How many would like Jesus as your constant friend? Yeah, okay, you raise your hand, but if he was there, you would be going, whoa, this, it's like, that's a little convicting for me. I want to do my own thing, right? But he says, it's better for me to go. Why would he say that if it wasn't for this fact? The only way that you're going to be able to fulfill the calling that he's created you to do, the assignment, is that you need the same Holy Spirit and to rely on that same Holy Spirit just like he did. See, when Jesus got up in the morning, fully human, yet fully God, he would awake and say, I've been created and called to serve you. He would also awake and say, Father, today, I want your spirit as he is present, living in me and through me and around me. I want to be present to all that he's doing. I want to be totally yielded to whatever you are asking me to do. And the only way he can come into your life and help you fulfill the calling that he has for you in the places you're at is if you open your heart and surrender and say, Holy Spirit, come in. This day, this morning, I awake, and throughout the day, one of the foundational thoughts will be that you will lead and empower me to do what you've called and created me to do. Does that make sense? Now the third thing is he goes through and he gives you another one more picture. And I love this picture because it's another one of his foundational thoughts. God stretches and reaches through me to serve others. See, when you, when you move to the place where you, you know, stoop down, you, you touch the sky when you stoop down, when you say, God, I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to set aside my agenda so that I follow your agenda. And when you do that at times, I got to tell you, it's not easy. When someone hurts you, how do you serve them? What you do is you have a conversation around the pain and the hurt so they have some understanding. And you, the only thing that you can do in serving in many of those situations is to let go and forgive. You're in situations with people who don't get it. They're not called and created in that sense that they're not living that out and they're not being led and empowered. And you're living in a situation with people who you go, this is just a hard life in situation to live with. It's hard to serve this person because they make fun of me or they do this. But what does it mean for you not to react, but for you to intentionally love and serve? See, Jesus, it says here in Scripture, and when it says here in verse 8, this is how far Jesus reaches down to you and me. He served us at our worst. So much so it says that in being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself. He stooped so far down by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I don't know. What is God doing in a relationship you may have? Someone close to you, someone at school, someone at work, someone that is, is a friend, that, a parent maybe, a, a grandparent or a kid. I don't know. Where is God saying, you know what? 
I want you in this situation to be obedient even to death. What you think you need to grasp, what you think you need to hold on to, you feel it's my right, they've hurt me, they've done this. And you're saying, God, I'm going to be like you. I'm going to reach down and I'm going to bend down. I'm going to allow you to use me to touch someone else by serving. That's what happens here. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It was through his sacrificial, humiliating service that cost his life that God the Father reached through him to you and me to literally save us. Aren't you glad? That he didn't go, nah, I'm, you know what, the death thing, uh-uh. Not doing that one. I've tried again and again, they're not getting it. And as I was kind of processing through this message, the question just hit me. It's like the Holy Spirit, you know, sometimes grabs hold of you and just says, Kevin, now as you're writing this, how far are you willing to stretch down for others so that God, your Father, through the Holy Spirit, might reach down through you to touch them? Yeah, but they ridicule me. Or yeah, I'm feeling, they just humiliate me. Or yeah, it means I got to give this up. Or it means, and he goes, you know what? Are you willing to become obedient? Are you willing to surrender and submit yourself to my leading? And you know what's really interesting? That when Jesus did that, the power of God came through his life. And he did a couple things. One is, the power of God came through his life to save you and me. The power of God came through his life to raise him up. In a moment, after three days, you know, three days, God makes this great revelation of of, of resurrection, and he promotes him from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. And so his foundational thinking and thoughts were, as he wakes up, God, you've created and called me, and God... If you create and called me, then you'll equip me. You will actually lead and empower me. And my job is to reach down and to serve so that through me you can touch another person's life. And here's his fourth thought. And I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust when I do this that you know and you will redeem And you will reward every act of service that I do in your name. Whether I see it in this lifetime, you may not be promoted in this life. Jesus wasn't promoted in that life. Here's the fourth thought. God redeems and rewards my every act as I serve others. And I think this was foundational to his thinking. This is the one that's more forward-looking. So that as you are fulfilling the assignments God's given you, being equipped by his spirit, being led by his spirit, surrendering to his spirit, submitting yourself, humbling yourself, serving whatever that looks like in your situation. Let me just say this. Serving someone else does not mean being a doormat. Okay? Dying to yourself is the hardest thing you will ever do, but it's unique for each and every one of us. There may be here, you as in your situation, the thing that you have to die to is, is being a doormat. 
The thing you may have to die to is in a relationship where a person takes advantage of you over and over and over again. One of the things he, God might be calling you to do, because what you're doing in that situation is the easy way out, and you're, you're just pleasing him. The way God might really reach them is you might at a certain point say, listen, I have to tell you the truth, and, and I'm going to have to maybe hold a boundary here. And in doing that, it makes them angry. And what God might be even doing through that is changing their heart, getting a hold of their heart, because you are. it's not a selfish thing to do that. That can be a very loving thing to do. Any parent who has a child who continues to rebel and does, at a certain point, they talk about tough love. Tough love doesn't mean let them keep doing it. It means at a certain point you have to sometimes recognize what you're not doing, what you're failing to do, is to stand in such a way that creates some response that is positive. When Jesus stood before the Pharisees, he at times had to say things. He didn't let them run him over. At times he stood up and he said, you know, you guys, he, he said, this is what you're doing. And when he did it, he knew that he would experience their wrath. Does that make sense? God calls us to be fully human people. And there are times in certain situations as God is calling you. That's why I can't stand up here and give you, okay, A, B, you do this. You have to listen to the Spirit. That's what it means when he says, I listen, I'm led, I'm empowered, because my whole motivation in serving is always to love that person. And love must sometimes look different. I'll just get really vulnerable and honest. In our relationship with my wife, one of the things for my wife is her ability to, um, because I can be kind of a forceful presence at times. The intensity, you probably see it from time to time. One of her things that she works on that I try and honor is for her to speak up and to speak her truth and to really, um, because she has such a servant's heart that sometimes she just lets go of her own needs. You see, This thing of serving like Jesus is a really rich and deep and and full concept of saying, God, you've given me assignment, you've created and called me, and God, I understand that you will lead and empower me. I need to listen. It's love is the end. So what are you leading me? What do I need to listen to? What are you empowering me to do? And then I will, when those occasions are right, I will die to myself and I will maybe speak up or I will shut up. Whatever God's calling you to do. I will either bend down or I will say, no, I, I, this, is, this is important that this needs to be placed here. And you will always do it with this future idea that you do good for goodness sake. There is an inherent goodness in serving. But there's more than an inherent goodness. There is an inheritance that you will receive. You will be rewarded. Every painful act of service of dying to yourself will bring about redemption. It will bring about a change for the good. And God will promote and reward you. He will redeem the time, the energy, the pain, the suffering of your servants. And I was thinking about this and I thought parents know this truth. There are parents who are raising babies and you know what it means to be up at 3 a.m. in the morning all night with babies or with sick children. I don't know whatever the pain is. But parents, there is a payoff someday because someday you will be promoted to be a grandparent and you will know the joy of kids without really having to care for them. There is always the act of promotion. Inherent in that serving is also a reward. There's a, a story that um, a friend had shared with me you know, you think about streets, and usually we name streets after important personages, right? So I was going to um, 
Mall of America to help serve it uh, for uh, free bikes for kids. Is that, yeah, free bikes for kids. And on my way there, you turn on to what? Kilbrew Road, right? Whatever that is. You know, Holman Harmon Kilbrew. We're going to remember him forever. Give him a name for road. Or you think of Kirby Pocket, right? Gets his road. Or if politicians get this or businessmen get it, you know, like Olson Memorial Highway. Anybody know who Olson is? few of you may. Anyway, um, Carlson. Go over to Carlson Towers and get over to Carlson Parkway or whatever that is there. Well, in Chicago, it's really interesting. It's very confusing, not only for visitors, but even for Chicagoans at times, it's confusing because they take names of roads that had been established long ago, like Michigan, or very creative names like Third Street, um, and they, they will actually, a few blocks down the road, um, they will name it after an important personage. So you can be going along, and all of a sudden, you know, they'll say, take this road, and it, it's the same road over here, but a few blocks over here, it's different. And there's a lot of these. Because they will, they will actually name them and give them designations for celebrities or for religious leaders or for activists or business moguls. And it's just a way of paying homage to people. And it, in, in many ways, it requires a lot of political finagling to get any street named after you. So this um, person at Chicago Sun-Times writes about a guy. He says, it may puzzle some folks to see honorary street signs, one named Wilbert Williams Way which was recently erected, or a few years ago, erected downtown on the corner of the Magnificent Mile. So to get your name on the Magnificent Mile is a big deal. Wilbert Williams doesn't ring a bell with the greater population of Chicago and probably doesn't hear. Anybody know Wilbert Williams? Okay, I didn't think so. They didn't in the first service either. So Don Ekman, who was the guy who negotiated with City Hall for the sign to be changed, uh, and had the backing of hundreds of Chicagoans who also greeted Wilbur Williams every day as he worked as a doorman. For 40 years at the post, as a doorman at the Women's Athletic Club building, Williams would greet people. And when he came to retirement, so many people had been so touched by his service that they started and initiated this desire to name a street after him. And such fuss was made over this decision that it caught him by surprise because he didn't see anything that he had done that had been out of the ordinary. But those familiar with Williams knew better. They thought of him as a city treasure. They say no matter who, um, who you are, famous or otherwise, William treats everyone he meets with the same respect and kindness and helpfulness, traits that prompted actually one woman to give a Cadillac to Williams. Now, that is the kind of serving I want to learn how to do. No one here has given me a Cadillac. But anyway... One of the police officers, Paul Donald, said, I've worked this area for 15 years, and he's the best down here. Listen to this. In all these years, I've never heard him speak a harsh word about anyone. He's a gentleman. What more can you say? And the author ends, what indeed? It was just William's way. So here is this guy who had no idea of any grand plan. I don't think when he was serving people, he was thinking, if I serve her really well, I'll get a catalog. He just knew serving was inherently good, and with that, he receives the inheritance, in a sense, of a name, Wilbert Williams Way, that people will look at and they'll say, well, who was he? And I think Jesus served 
with this inherent sense of, Father, I am created and called to do what you said. I will be led and empowered by the Holy Spirit just like we can. And the way he did it was always down. What does it mean for me to reach out, to stretch and reach down, to serve others? How does that look in this situation to love this person? And when he did it, he always trusted that God in his own time, even when he was obedient to death, would promote him. God will promote you. He will reward. He will redeem every act of service you do for him. The question is this. Will you begin to let these foundational thoughts build an attitude in you so that over time a character will be built into you that will create a way, kind of a Williams way, in the hearts of others? And they're going to look back and go, man, it was because of so-and-so that I know Jesus, that I know what I know this day. I'm going to ask the team to come out and just lead us in this last uh, chorus.